But let me ask you this question. You ever in school ever had to partner with someone for a project? And, uh, and you like, man, why did I end up with this person for a project? You know, it's not working out. In, in high school today, my son's in grade eight now, and it seems like everything is a project. Like you're always partnered up with someone. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because you can be with, partnered up with someone you like or maybe with someone who doesn't do any of the work. And often you choose a friend. Uh, if they give you the choice, you choose a friend and then you realize my friend does absolutely nothing. Like they were great at recess, but they stink at this project, right? And so, so you know, it's, you got to choose wisely and figure that out. And, and uh, I wonder if sometimes... Uh, as we look uh, over the next few weeks, and especially today, as we consider um, a vision for marriage uh, from the scriptures, and we, we consider what maybe sometimes what some couples do as they get towards marriage or before marriage, they, you know, how they choose a spouse or how they uh, envision marriage, sometimes the goal is just get married, period. Just get married get down the aisle, choose a nice dress, have a nice suit, make sure there's good food, um, and then don't think so much about the partnership that would be involved in marriage. And so sometimes they realize maybe that uh, they, they only had one goal, or, and that was getting married, but no other goals besides that. And then they discover through marriage that marriage is much more than just getting married. And this week, as we continue this series that we kicked off last week, we want to um, continue that and, and move forward with what we started last week. Last week, we started with this phrase. We said, a vision for marriage begins with a promise. A vision for marriage begins with a promise. And we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we discovered that as marriage starts with a promise because the language we read about in the early pages of Genesis is covenant language. Covenant language is two entities, two people, two groups coming together and and choosing to be uh, together. And so we discovered this covenant language in Genesis 1 and 2 regarding marriage. And we saw these kind of two polar opposites, and we looked at the two extremes, and of course, there's anywhere in between of what that might look like. So sometimes we talked about, what we talked about is consumer relationships versus covenant relationships. And often in consumer relationships, the needs come before the relationship. And I'm generalizing, but that's what we we talked about. And then in covenant relationship, the relationship comes before the needs. It's a very different idea. And maybe in a traditional sense, um, family might be a goal for marriage, In a modern sense, happiness might be a goal for marriage, but covenant goes beyond both of those. In fact, whether it's family or happiness or something else, those are byproducts of marriage, not necessarily the goal of marriage. And this week, we want to go further, because we started with this promise. If a vision for marriage starts with a promise, where does it go next? What happens next? Um, uh, Where do we go from there? How do we continue? How do we thrive? And you know what? Marriage in our culture often has a bad rap, People like to, like to quote the bad statistics. And there are unfortunate, sad statistics in marriage. And I tr- really try, um, even in my own heart and mind, and even as we're walking through this uh, in this series, to really uh, carry the burden of some of the, the difficulty in our own church community, in our own friends and families, of um, some marriages that have, have, um, have been broken under, the, under the, um, the overwhelming pressure of culture, sometimes out of the result of sin, um, sometimes out of other circumstances. But we often, when you read a book on marriage, I like to start with all these negative statistics, but I read this great uh, survey and study that talked about 60, over 60% of marriages would say that they're happy. 
And that when a marriage, uh, when a marriage um, goes through a problem or a struggle, if that couple will commit to, to four or five years, that on average, they will be able to walk through that struggle. And, um, and so it was interesting to read some of those stats because sometimes we get thrown at with ultra-negative stats, but there's some positive stats out there that I think you know, give us a hope for understanding what that means. But let's continue today, okay? So if marriage begins with a promise... How do we move forward? And today I want to talk about marriage as a partnership. And so here's the one phrase uh, we want to land on today. A vision for marriage thrives as a partnership. A vision for marriage thrives as a partnership. So let's jump into that. But before I do, let's pray. Father, we've been worshiping you already. We've been talking with one another. Maybe we've met some friends or some new people. Um, And in this moment, God, we, um, we pause and we want to invite you uh, to speak into our lives, to speak into our hearts. God, you know more than, than me that uh, there's just a variety of us in, in our gathering today um, that have different experiences with relationships, um, some positive, some negative. Um, God, we know some uh, that are married or maybe are looking towards marriage and some that have uh, been through a marital breakdown, God. And so, God, we lift all of us to you and ask you to speak to us so we can learn from you and grow, um, not only in our understanding of marriage, but in our understanding of you and in our understanding of how to be a community with one another, regardless of our marital status. Um, So God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we want to get to this idea of partnership, but before we do, we're going to walk through two ideas to get there. And the two ideas are perspective and priority. And so we want to get to partnership through perspective, through priority. The first idea is thinking about perspective. Last week, we we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to read it all today. We're just going to read a couple of verses from it. And what Genesis 1 and 2 does is gives us perspective on the start of understanding a vision for marriage. And one of the things it does in terms of perspective is this. And we find it first in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, where you can read it with me off the screen. And it says this, then God said, here's, this is in the creation story of Genesis. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When you think about this, this, this part of, 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 of God's heart, God's desire for humanity, you see there's this shared likeness among a man and a woman, which is their likeness to God. That it, and it's interesting, you just read it there, that man has been created in the image of God, in, the imi- or in his likeness. And then bringing them together, male and female, he's created both of them to reflect who he is. And so this first perspective that is just so foundational is a husband and wife share the likeness of God. A husband and wife are both image bearers of God. They both, in some way or another, reflect who God is. And this is so huge because we often want to try and kind of create, you know, men are this, women are this. But imagine this perspective as the foundation to say, uh, my spouse is made in the image of God. My husband or my wife is made in the likeness of God. There's this shared likeness to God. But then there's also this shared likeness to each other. In, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 20 to 23, we read it this way. And um, let's just throw that on the screen. 
Oh, it's not there? The one before that? Okay, let's go to it. Good old-fashioned, open my Bible and turn to it. So it's Genesis chapter 2, and uh, here's what it says from verse 20. It says, so, um, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Here's this other shared like this other shared likeness, this perspective that each marriage needs to be founded on. There's not only a likeness to God, there's a likeness to each other. And when Adam discovers Eve, he bursts out in this poetic um, prose. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. So Adam discovered something unique in Eve, that she was like him. There was no other suitable helper in all of creation, among the rest of creation. But when he discovered Eve, he saw something in her that was unique, something in her that was like him. So you discover this vertical likeness towards God and this horizontal likeness towards each other. They're both image bearers. They're both reflecting God's likeness. They're both created to reflect the image of God and to steward God's creation. And when you think about it, that's unique among all creation. The shared likeness to God, the shared likeness to each other. Now just stop for a second, just before we do anything else. Imagine every spouse would wake up in the morning and the first thing they acknowledge and recognize is, my husband is an image bearer of God. My wife reflects the likeness of God. Now, I know no one looks great at six in the morning. I mean, I totally don't look like God at six in the morning, but I don't even look like God now. But but just imagine every spouse would begin their day with this perspective. My spouse is a reflection of the likeness of God. My wife reflects the image of God. My husband reflects the image of God. Man, that likeness, that shared likeness would just give them so much perspective to base this partnership on. That would be huge. And this likeness has a purpose. In chapter one of of Genesis, it says, you know, man was created in the image of God so that they might rule. So here's this shared responsibility, not just on all of humanity, but when when a man and a wife do come together, not all are married, but when people do get married, there is this shared responsibility over the stewardship of creation, over the stewardship of what God has given them. And uh, it's amazing that, you know, one person or just male or just female could not do that. But in all creation, in all of humanity, it takes both. And that's something to consider. But now we move from, from perspective to the next thing, and it's priority. Before we even get to partnership, think about this for a second. In Genesis uh, 2, at the end of what we just read, in verse 24, it says this. It says, a man will leave. Uh, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Just like we read that and we think like, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's normal. That's Like, maybe you've read that before, you understand that. We read it last week. Maybe it seems common. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, that would be almost like, oh, is that how I'm supposed to view my spouse? 
Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, the parent-child relationship was the most vital, important relationship that existed. And it was almost worshipped in a sense. And when people got married, yes, there was a sense of partnership. But what was happening is often a man or a woman was chosen for their family, for their inheritance, for their wealth, for their economic capacity, for what they could do for, oh, if you marry this person, maybe their family could do this for our family. And so there was some strings attached often in the ancient year world. And you know what? That's not just, you know, four or 5,000 years old. That's like today. Often that does happen as well. It doesn't happen as much, but it does happen. Oh, if, man, if, if I can marry into that family, I'd be set. If I could marry, you know, this person and the connections that they have and whatever, oh, maybe that would, you know, that would just, you know, make our lives set. But here's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says something so unique in that culture, but also should shock us a little bit in this culture is this, the priority of the relationship just gets elevated. All of a sudden, it's not um, the most important relationship in my life is the parent-child relationship. When someone chooses to get married, the most important relationship in their life, outside of their relationship vertically with God, is that, is that person. Is that person. So think about it as it's literally said, just for even, it's a male perspective, the man will leave his family, his parents, and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. So they leave their priority relationship to start a brand new priority relationship that takes precedence. It doesn't leave that other relationship behind. It doesn't ditch the family. It doesn't ditch the relatives. <clears throat> it doesn't do that. Some of you guys are thinking, I wish that could be the case. I could just be away from my in-laws, you know? Uh, that's, not, that's not the goal here. So don't use this verse to make that, you know, I knew it. I knew I had legitimacy here. But anyways, don't use that. Uh, and definitely don't tie my name to it. But, but think about it for a second. In that culture, it became this person, this woman is worth, is worth separating from my parents for. This man is worth separating from my parents for, for. This marriage is a brand new priority in my life. It's huge. It's huge. And so the spouse becomes this priority relationship. Tim Keller says it like this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. You can read it off the screen. He says, when you marry your spouse, it sounds really strong, but take it into context. When you marry your spouse, that must supersede all other relationships, even the parental relationship. Your spouse and your marriage must be the number one priority in your life. No other human being should get more of your love, more of your energy, industry, and commitment than your spouse. This becomes difficult when your job has demands on you. This becomes difficult when some couples have children and then how am I going to split my time? How am I going to figure this out? But it is so vital to understand what that means, this priority relationship. Check out Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. I love, I love what it says. It says, now it's in a negative situation, trying to protect someone from uh, leaving their spouse. But listen to the words. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left, check this out, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. That word partner is the word that would mean this special confidant, this best friend, the most special friend. And so when you think about this perspective, this priority, and leading to partnership, 
you consider your spouse your, your best friend, the most important person in your life. Remember, I remember um, walking with a couple before they got married, and uh, it was a young couple, and uh, they had gotten together, and almost everyone could see, well, I wouldn't say that. I know that some of us recognized, those that were close to them said, wondered, like, why are you getting married? And it never felt like, like they really were together. And it, it felt like they were just getting married to get married. You know, it was the thing to do. It was the next step. It was, I found a guy, I found a girl. And it seemed that they had, they had, they had none of this special confident, best friend, priority, perspective in their relationship. And yet they got married. And literally within a couple of months, the marriage dissolved. And uh, they both went their separate ways and, uh, and went on with their life. And I, I, I never forget, I, we would, I remember just walking with them and they didn't get much counsel before they got married. They didn't think through this as much. And, and really, they just got married to get married. They had no other purpose. They had no sense of, we're going to build a partnership together. They had no sense of, this is the priority of my life. They had no sense of another vision for their life that they could actually engage in together. They had no sense of purpose outside of, I'm just going to get married. And so they didn't have none of this that we're talking about this morning. And so they were never able to build a partnership and move forward. Um, this is a funny cartoon, kind of sad actually. And so this, now this is totally generalizing, right? Single... And then when these two people date, um, the dating fact is the best part about being in a relationship is getting to be alone with someone else. <laughs> now, that kind of looks funny in a cartoon, but it's pretty sad, right? Like, I wanna, I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing, so why don't we just get together and do our own thing together but alone? That's not partnership. That's not the way we move forward. So we want to move towards partnership. A vision for marriage will thrive as a partnership. A vision for marriage will thrive as a partnership. It's founded on this perspective, shared likeness with God, shared likeness with each other. It's founded on this is the most important relationship in my life, and then it moves to this partnership. And think about our culture. Think about the movies, the stories, the media, um, and they all revolve around three or four major ideas. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, sex, money, power, and religion. The last one, sometimes not as much. But you can kind of, if, you, if you, you're watching a movie, one of those four things are, are the part of the story. If uh, you're, you're, re, you're, you're you know, seeing the headlines of a news, and there's something that goes on, good or positive, one of those things are usually part of that. And often those things divide us. When someone knocks at my neighbor's door that's kind of going from house to house with um, you know, his or her religion, uh, me and my neighbor will chat about a bunch of stuff because we know each other. But when they knock at his door, he'll tell me, Dave, I don't talk to people about you know, religion, politics, or money, or sex. Just leave me alone about that stuff. That's my business. We'll talk about it sometimes because we're neighbors. But he doesn't like someone else coming to his door and ringing his bell and talking about that stuff. There's something about those topics that, that just rile people up. And Instead of letting them divide us, what if we looked at partnership even through those lenses? So think about the first one, which is a physical partnership in marriage. I'm going to try to be really um, kid-friendly here because I know there's some kids in the room as well. But this physical partnership in marriage is one of the, the most vivid expressions of oneness that we read from Genesis. One flesh is most vividly seen in physical intimacy. 
In fact, marriage wasn't even confirmed or consummated in the ancient world until physical intimacy took place. Something happens physically that reflects what's going on emotionally when this happens. And there's a fusion of uh, a coming together of, of two bodies, of passion, of spirit. And when you think about that, that's one of the deep, beautiful, intimate ways that a couple is a partner, that a marriage is a partnership. And, and just stop for a second. Why is that the most difficult thing to um, heal from when there's brokenness or betrayal in that? Why is it that the most hurt comes from physical betrayal? That's because there's a stickiness factor to physical intimacy that, that is unlike anything else that gets created during physical intimacy, that when it unravels, it hurts. It does. And, you know, and, and, and we walk with people. Maybe you've walked with friends or relatives or others, and you've walked through the pain of what that's, what that's like. Maybe yourself personally, or you've walked with that with others. Because just like you stick a bandage that has a lot of stickiness on it on my arm, I'm going to scream when you rip it off. So either I say do it really slowly or rip it off fast or give me something to bite on because it's going to hurt really bad. And some of you can take the pain and some of you can't and whatever. But that's that stickiness factor. And that physical partnership is that stickiness factor. And when that is broken, there's a betrayal that's felt. There's a hurt that's felt. There's that, oh, this... This was not meant to be unstuck. If you're single, one of the main reasons the scriptures reserves physical intimacy for marriage is, is this. It's not just because, oh, you know, you know, God would rather that no one has fun. <laughs> it's not that. It's, it's not about that. It's, that. it's that because of this stickiness factor, because of this union, because of this partnership, the scriptures affirm that you wait until marriage to engage in this because it fuses two people together like nothing else. In fact, there's this sense that actually this actually unites people. It actually marries people. And that's why it was part of what it means to consummate a marriage. But the positive side is that it does unite a husband and wife. It does nurture a marriage relationship. It does help a couple experience oneness. So that's physical partnership. The next is, is economic partnership. I know it feels weird, right? Money? You know, 90% of, uh, or at least a high percentage of reasons listed for divorce, money is in there. If it's not the top, it's one of the top three reasons that are, often will fuel uh, or start or be part of a breakup in marriage. And so this is, the, this is the, one of the biggest myths in marriage when people get married. Money's not going to be an option. Money's, I mean, the money's not going to be an issue. Money's not going to bother us. We're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. It's not going to hurt us or whatever. And we've got to just think about this for a second. How, a marriage, how two people partner economically is so vital. And it's not just about money. It's about your life. It's, it's your whole economic outlook. Only for the last hundred years or so have both, um, you know, have both husband and wife been in officially in the workforce, but forever they've been in the workforce because they've both together built this family, built this home, built this place. And so, sure, two, three hundred years ago, it was the family business or the farm or whatever, and so a husband and wife would have two different roles. Maybe the wife would, would at that time manage the household more and the husband would do more of the physical labor, but they 
they were together contributing to the economic um, you know, movement forward of their family. So today, put it in our context today, whether you're a one-income family or a two-income families, that's really irrelevant. You're both contributing to the economic well-being of your household. And you both partner together in that. You both partner together in that. So there's this economic partnership that happens there that's so vital. How do you partner? You partner with your funds. So it's never like, oh, it's, it's her money or it's his money or it's my money and it's your money. It's this is our money. This is our livelihood. This is our life that we're, build, we're building together, that we're going to fuse together. i never forget when I was married for three, four years, and my mom had, had put money aside for us as kids. When, when she'd get some money, she'd buy a Canadian savings bond. Today, it's not worth it. It's like 1%. But back then, it was like 7%, and it doubled in seven years or whatever. So she'd put in 500 bucks, and seven years later, it was 1,000, and she never spent it. And over the years, as we got older, she would save it for us. And I remember one, one was coming to be expired, and she told me about it, and it was about $1,200. And, and I was already married three or four years, and I really wanted a new keyboard, a new keyboard, new piano. You know, I used to play more back then. And so with, I mean, I didn't even think about the fact that maybe I should view this $1,200 as ours and not just mine. You know, maybe, yeah, I mean, it came from my mom and she stashed it away before I ever signed a marriage certificate and it's coming, you know, it's ready now and it's in my name and I'm going to get the money. And I didn't even think that at that time. Frank and I talked about that, and we figured what that looks like. But I, I, I did buy the keyboard, and it's not that Frank had didn't celebrate in the fact that I was a musician, and I played, and I used you know, this, this kind of stuff for, for music and church ministry and things like that. But the point was, it was like, so many of us make this, these economic decisions like, oh, this money is just my money. But when you get married, you're in an economic partnership. You're working together, regardless of one or two incomes. So some people say, well, that's my car, this is her car. That's my bank account, that's her, her bank account. You know, you go to work and you make this much money and you put this much aside, so that's how much you have to spend and that's cool. But hey, this is mine. And, but there's this economic partnership that takes place. And when it doesn't, when it's hers, mine, your car, my car, that's your parents' inheritance or this or that or whatever, now, of course, that gets touchy when there's a marital breakdown, for sure. But in the context of a partnership that's being fueled, if it's not like that, it's toxic. It's toxic. It, 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 it gets to us because money is one of those big powers in our, in our culture. So economic partnership. Here's the second last one, and these next two will be shorter. It's, we're a life partner. So there was, phys- there was you know, sex and money, and then there's power. And power in our world is, what do we do with our lives? How are we going to influence people What's my credibility like? What's my influence like? When you come together and you get married, you, have, you become life partners. So the vision for life is together. How you want your home to be. How you want people to feel when they come into your home. How you want to use your resources. What do you want God to do with your life? All these questions come into play and you become a life partner. You have a vision for life together, not just alone. Now, it doesn't mean that someone can't say, you know what, I really want to, I really want to celebrate your next step in education because you want to move forward that way or what you're doing in, in business or what you're doing with, with this gift you have or this strength you have. And so we encourage each other we encourage our, you know, our, our spouse 
whichever way that means. It doesn't mean that we can't do anything alone or there are not things that are more geared towards one than the other, but there's idea that there's a, we're life partners. And then the last thing is this, and I think this one is a little bit touchy, but it's your spiritual partners. Now, some of you, as soon as I say that, say, I don't think I've been a spiritual partner with my wife or my husband. Some people have, have been following Christ and maybe uh, gotten into a relationship where someone wasn't a believer and, and it was hard to even figure that out. How do we, can we be spiritual partners that way? If, if you're here today and you're, you're not married or uh, you're single and, you're, and, and maybe you're thinking about marriage, I would say, think through the life you long for. Think through the person you want to be with, the person you want to become. I'll just tell you this from my experience. There's things in my life, my wife and I, that God has led us towards. Sometimes first me, sometimes first her, and then we work through it together. And I can tell you that a a ton of those things would never have happened if we weren't spiritual partners. Like like Westside is one of them. We started this church together with a handful of people 11 years ago. Westside would never have happened, just never have happened if my wife and I weren't spiritual partners. Just be impossible. It's virtually impossible because if God leads you and nudges your heart and builds your heart towards something and your spouse is not listening to the Lord and are receptive to that or even, even open because just because God, you feel God says something doesn't mean it's the way to go. That's not, that's not true. We've got to work this out and discern. Is this really the Lord at work here? Is he really convicting us in this way? And then sometimes it just takes time. It took my wife and I three years to really get on track together before we said, we're going to plant this church with other people. But it's not just that. Sometimes it's a financial decision. It's a generosity decision. It's a ministry decision. It's a how do we want to live our lives decision. And unless you're spiritual partners, it's just hard to do. And so I encourage you to think about this as, as, a, as a couple. Now, if you're not married, think about it as you think about marriage. If you are married, then, and maybe your, your spouse isn't a believer and might not think that way, then there's other ways that we, you know, we could talk about that that we don't have time to talk about today, but partnership comes to that. Think about physical, economic, life, and spiritual. Now, before we close this, partnership is not uniformity. It's not exact sameness it's not we're exactly the same it's it's never it's never this here's a glove and here's a hand here's one spouse and here's an and it's just a perfect fit together like that's no marriage on the planet has ever been a glove and a hand it's just it doesn't work that perfectly you will never marry the right person tim keller says no two people are compatible and it's an extreme way of saying, yes, of course, there are certain ways you need to discern if this is the right person or not. But in, if you really like, try and compare everything between one person and another person, you're never exactly compatible. It's always an intentional partnership. There's always going to be disparities between one person and another. So as we co- come to a close, I'm going to ask Matt and the team to come up because we want to uh, continue our gathering with worship today. But... Let me just, I'm sure that even in this room as we're talking, there's some, for some there's a heaviness of heart, for some there's an excitement, for some there's, this is what it could be, or for some it's like God's already been fueling you in this way, and for some it's, it's working through um, how to move forward in this way, and maybe, maybe you've been on a different path. I can, I can say for, for Frank and I, we didn't come 
into marriage 17 years ago having all this worked out. In fact, as much as we thought we were compatible, at 22 and 24, we were just making an educated guess. <laughs> okay, it was just like, I think, I feel, I, you know. And so, so often we had to slowly work through, and we still work through, what does life as partnership mean together? as we move forward in this together. And, and, and so often, and when I say so often, I mean so often, there's speed bumps along the way in this. And then you stop and say, hey, are we on the same page? i never forget when Franca noticed uh, my working habits and my time habits and things like that. And one day, this is before we were even married, she, we just had this serious conversation and she said, if this is how you're going to live your life, then I, I don't, I don't, I'm having doubts about marrying you. And this was pre-marriage, and we had to work through that. I'm not perfect at that, you know, 17 years later, but it's, it's slowly been getting better. But there was this, wait a second, are we on the same page? Are we going to partner together? And so there's this choice, uh, this choice that comes in a marriage relationship. It starts with a promise, but it can only thrive as a partnership. And that's how God created it to be. We're going to continue for the next few moments in our gathering in worship. And I'm not sure where, wherever, um, however God is nudging you or working in you today, I just encourage you to bring this, bring this to the Lord. Um, like I say, I know I'm, I'm, I'm saying this and I have a lot of disclaimers when I speak about marriage in a, in a large crowd because I know there's a variety of people with different experiences. So I'm going to trust that, this, that God's Spirit is going to speak to each and every one of us exactly how, we, how He needs to. And, uh, and he's going to help us uh, understand what this means for us personally. If you are in a marriage relationship uh, and you're walking with your spouse together in this moment, then I, one of the things I can tell you is make sure you view your marriage as a partnership. Make sure, because that's the only way your marriage will thrive, is as a partnership.